Good morning. Today brings us into 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Today's reading shares what discipline looks like in the follow-up of Paul's first letter. Because dis- good discipline always needs good follow-up. It says church discipline is not an easy thing. When someone inside the church is doing wrong, someone has to set them right. Discipline is necessary, but not easy, because you never know how it will be received. Most of us don't like being corrected. Proverbs 12 says, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. Harsh words for sure. And as true as it may be, a lot of us are prone to stupid sometimes, even in church. We need correction, but sometimes we fight back. Sometimes we take it the wrong way or even misread it. Or we think the one correcting us just doesn't like us. That's why Paul is following up to make sure they understand his heart. Remember that this is a church that Paul started himself. He spent a year and a half of his life pouring into this church with teaching, guidance, correction, and most of all, love. Paul loves this church. Sometimes love requires discipline. Now to get the context of chapter 2, we need to go back a verse at the end of chapter 1. Paul explained why he didn't get to visit Corinth. He also explained his role as a minister and apostle. So let's start there in chapter 1, verse 24. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith that you stand firm. Let's pay attention to this one. It's a real key to leadership and ministry. Do not lord it over. If God gives you authority of any kind in the church, Paul says that authority should not be used to lord it over the faith of others. We are not called to make life decisions for others or tell them what to do. Our job is to work together with them for their joy. Leadership is not self-serving. It comes alongside of others to help. That is Jesus-style ministry, and that was also Paul's attitude. It gives us the context for chapter 2. Paul wrote them previously and had visited both times with serious corrections and discipline, but always with the intent to restore the joy and the faith of the Corinthians themselves. Discipline done right brings joy. Disciplined kids are joyful kids. At the same time, And the same is true of Christians. Good discipline brings joy and comes out of love, but it's not always received that way. So Paul explains why he wrote the first letter in chapter 2, verse 3. I wrote as I did so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all you that you would all share my joy. In other words, Paul wrote with hard correction so that when he visits, it's all joy. Sin sucks the joy out of Christian fellowship, and correction, when done right, brings back the joy. Then in verse 4, For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. So Paul makes it clear that he wrote out out of love. In fact, he shed many tears over that letter. It's hard to correct people. When someone you have led 
and disciplined walks off into sin, it hurts. And choosing the right words to bring them back is a painful process. But the alternative of leaving Christian friends in sin is worse. Paul wrote, first, so that he could visit with joy. Paul was confident that they would listen. And they did. In one case, a little too well. And that brings us into verse 5. In verses 5 to 11, Paul follows up on a specific discipline from the first letter. Back in 1 Corinthians verse 5, Paul addressed the situation of a man in a church in what's referred to as a blatant, outright sin. It was a romantic relationship that was wrong with his father's wife. The man refused to give up his sin, so Paul said, Get him out of the church. Hand him over to Satan so his flesh will be destroyed, that his soul might be saved. It was a hard call, but the church leaders in Corinth did it. And guess what? It worked. Getting kicked out of fellowship was exactly what the man needed to really feel the weight of his sin. But now, sometime later, the man had repented, and Paul hears that the church won't let him back in, as if he committed the unforgivable sin. This is church discipline gone too far. And Paul corrects the correctors in verse 6. The punishment inflicted upon him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So Paul says, take him back, forgive and comfort. Come alongside to help. With church discipline, don't forget the follow-up. Discipline has a purpose, not to condemn, but to restore, and it worked. Now take him back. In verse 8, I urge you to therefore, I urge you therefore to reaffirm your love for him. After this, Paul explains why it's so important to follow up correction with forgiveness in verse 11. In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Now, here's a kicker. What does Satan's schemes have to do with church discipline? A lot. Satan seeks to divide, to keep grudges and bitterness between us through misunderstanding and unforgiveness. Doesn't this just loom around us like a dark and heavy cloud these days? But we are not unaware. We know what he's up to. In the case of church discipline, Satan's scheme is to turn conviction and correction into condemnation. Satan always tries to condemn. Here's clarification. Conviction is when you are convinced you did something wrong, and it comes from your conscience and from the Holy Spirit. If you did something wrong, conviction is good. Listen to it. Correction happens when a Christian hardens their heart against conviction. And a good church leader does something about it, even separates them from fellowship if they won't listen. Correction, if done right, is tough but good. Condemnation is different. Condemnation is an eternal correction, separation from God forever. True condemnation can only come from God, but Satan loves to fake it. That's his scheme. Take that separation from church and make you feel separated from God forever. He puts such a dark and dramatic spin on it that when we get caught up in it, it can take us down pretty quickly. He turns correction into condemnation. 
But for a Christian, Romans 8 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. So don't let Satan outwit you. Receive the correction and be restored to fellowship. As always, this message has uncanny timing for me. Does this ever happen to anyone else? Next up, Paul shares again his concern for the church. After he sent the letter of correction, he was out sharing the gospel in Troas, but awaiting word from Titus to hear how the Corinthians received the letter. In other words, Paul cared. He was concerned for the Corinthians, but he was also confident. He knew that through all these struggles of discipling and discipline, God would lead them into victory. Verse 14, But thanks be to God, who always leads us, as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. This is amazing. The triumph was a parade that Roman generals were given after a great victory. To be clear, Paul isn't approving of Roman conquests. He's talking spiritually about our triumph. For us, God is our general. Ministry is a battle. And with God, we win. In Rome, every triumphal procession came with lots of incense. It was the smell of victory. In God's victory march, we carry the incense. Back in verse 14, and he uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ. Among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Now there's a vivid image. We are the aroma of Christ. You know how a subtle smell can remind you of something or someone? Campfires, suntan lotion, a gentle aroma drifts by and suddenly you go back in time. We are the aroma of Christ. We are that subtle reminder, that little memory trigger of Jesus. To the saved, that memory is like life. But for the lost who refuse God's grace... The aroma of Jesus is a reminder of judgment, the smell of death. Verse 16, to the one we are the aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Hmm, this is something that I'll be taking with me throughout my day. Thank you, Jesus, for your timely reminders. Please help me to remain open to hearing you more and more clearly. Amen.